It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains descriptions of gun violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The evening of January 5th, 1924, was one of the coldest on record for Brooklyn, New York. Most people chose to stay inside, huddled over a hot stove, or at least a bottle of whiskey. But 20-year-old Celia Cooney wasn't like most people. The petite brunette didn't even feel the cold as she approached the grocery store. Her mind was on what she needed to accomplish there, and it had nothing to do with food shopping. Inside the store, she tried not to be intimidated by the six burly sales clerks behind the counter. She simply marched up to the one manning the cash register and asked for a dozen eggs, just like she and her husband had practiced. The clerk turned away to fulfill the order. He didn't suspect a thing. And then the door opened. It was her husband, Ed. As he stepped inside, he gave Celia a nod. That was her cue. The clerk turned back to her, eggs in hand. But before he could set them on the counter, Celia took two steps back and reached into her coat pocket. Then she said the three words that she'd rehearsed over and over. Stick them up. The clerk froze. Then he raised his arms over his head. Later, she'd say that he looked like a toy monkey. Celia almost giggled. It may have been her first holdup, but she had a feeling that she was a natural. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're discussing robber Celia Cooney, better known as the bobbed-haired bandit. In the winter of 1924, 
Celia and her husband pulled off 10 robberies in just under three months, a feat that made the stylish young bandit a media sensation practically overnight. This week, we'll look at how Celia's childhood, her marriage, and her possible mental health issues influenced her decision to start her crime spree. Next week, we'll examine her capture, trial, and the resulting press that rocketed Celia to nationwide fame. Celia Cooney was born Cecilia Roth in New York City on an unknown date in 1904. Her family lived in a one-room basement apartment on East 4th Street in what is now known as the East Village. She was the youngest of eight children. Celia's parents were poor, and her home life was troubled. Her father, Michael Roth, was an alcoholic who struggled to hold down a job. Her mother, Anna, was a part-time floor cleaner and illiterate. The Roths were, by all accounts, indifferent parents. It wasn't unusual for them to leave their children alone for long periods of time or to send them out to the streets to beg. By the time Celia was born, her parents had already lost custody of three of their daughters due to neglect. And when Celia was just four years old, the city took her away as well. She was placed in the care of the Children's Society of New York for six months. Anna regained custody of Celia, but not for long. Soon after, she abandoned her little girl again. Celia was found by neighbors in a rented room. Her mother had left her alone for three days. After this, Celia went to live with her aunt in Brooklyn. She still saw her mother, but only for short visits, which usually went badly. After each visit, Anna eventually left Celia behind dressed in rags. She'd taken her daughter's clothes with her. These early experiences of neglect and abandonment likely impacted Celia's mental health as an adult. Before I continue with Celia's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. Childhood abuse and neglect has been shown to lead to mental health issues later in life, such as depression, dissociation, and PTSD. But a 2011 study by Christina Gamash-Martin, Lisa DeMarney Cromer, and Anne P. DePrince found that children who are abused by a primary caregiver, such as a parent, are at a particularly high risk for severe mental health issues. Psychologist Jennifer J. Fried coined a specific term for abuse inflicted on a child by someone they turn to for care and protection, betrayal trauma. Celia experienced betrayal trauma at the hands of both of her parents, but especially her mother. When she didn't receive the unconditional love she needed from Anna, she was set on a course toward a difficult adulthood. Celia attended a school while she lived with her aunt, but dropped out at the age of 14 when she took a job in a brush factory. During this time, she moved in with one of her married sisters. For perhaps the first time in her life, Celia's life seemed to be moving in a positive direction. She was making money of her own and living in a stable, supportive environment. But her older sister noticed a troubling habit. Celia liked to steal. Nothing big or obvious, just little things. 
It was Celia's interest in men that was her sister's larger concern. The teenager often took to carousing with sailors after hours, stirring up scandalous rumors among neighbors. It was enough for her and her sister to have a falling out. By 1920, 16-year-old Celia left for good. She cut off all contact with her family and later told people that her parents were dead. After moving out of her sister's home, Celia found work as a laundress in a series of local hospitals, making anywhere from $12 to $15 a week, about $150 to $200 a week today. Some of her employers claimed she was a model worker. Others said that she was a subversive ringleader who liked to inspire bad behavior in other female employees. Regardless, Celia never lasted at any job for very long. Her main focus was her personal life. In March of 1922, when she was 18, Celia moved in with a man she claimed was her husband. He wasn't. The two lived together as a married couple for the better part of a year, and then, in the late winter of 1923, her life completely changed. That night, she went to a movie house and ran into a friend who was there with his buddy, Ed Cooney. Ed became the love of Celia's life. 24-year-old Ed Cooney worked as a welder in an automotive repair shop and had lived in Brooklyn all of his life. He'd had a more stable childhood than Celia, despite a minor run-in with the law for stealing scrap metal when he was 15. What first struck Celia were Ed's looks. He was handsome and held a resemblance to popular boxer Jack Dempsey, though unlike Jack, Ed was blonde and blue-eyed. Celia was immediately attracted to him. The same night they met, Ed and Celia decided to go out for Chinese food and then dancing. When Ed walked her home at the end of the night, Celia already knew that she was madly in love with him. Their courtship moved fast. After just a few months of going steady, Ed proposed. They married on May 18, 1923, and moved into a single, furnished room in the Bedford area of Brooklyn. Celia had never been happier. For a child who'd grown up with nothing, she now had a job, a one-room apartment, and a husband she was deeply in love with. And they complimented one another. Ed was the silent, stoic type, while Celia had a feisty, charismatic temperament and lightning-quick mood changes. In many ways, she and Ed were the ideal match. There was only one problem. Neither of them liked to save money. Together, the couple made $40 a week, enough to get by, but they spent all of it and then some. Celia and Ed weren't alone in their spendthrift ways. Most of America was on a spending spree in the 1920s. In their book on Celia Cooney, The Bobbed-Haired Bandit, authors Stephen Duncombe and Andrew Matson explained that, at the time, installment plans and the expansion of credit were a relatively new phenomenon. These financial trends had evolved to keep people consuming excessive amounts of goods being introduced to the market even if they couldn't pay for them up front. And the advertising industry did its part to keep people coming back for more. 
they sold products as upgrades to a person's lifestyle, the working class could now have their piece of the American dream if they just made the down payment. For Celia and Ed, their weakness was clothes. Ed liked for Celia to look her best. He wanted her to have everything she deserved, even a real fur coat. So in the fall of 1923, Ed and Celia traveled into Manhattan and went to a fur store on Fifth Avenue. When they walked inside the shop, Celia was nervous. She didn't think she belonged there, but Ed put her at ease. Plus, Celia wasn't the type to let other people know she was intimidated. She tried on a series of furs until she settled on a real sealskin coat. They walked out giddy. She may have just put them both in debt, but Celia felt, as she said later, like a million bucks. That same fall, after just four months of marriage, 19-year-old Celia learned she was pregnant. The news thrilled her, but it also made her anxious. Looking around their one-room apartment, she could only think of her own horrendous childhood. She later wrote that it made her sick to think of the same thing happening all over again. One day near the end of 1923, Celia's anxieties reached a boiling point. She told Ed that she couldn't stand their apartment any longer. Ed assured her they would move, they'd find another room, but Celia blew up at him. She said, I don't want a room, I want a home. Ed had never seen her like this. It scared him, and it terrified him more that he couldn't provide her with what she needed, what their child needed. One night he looked at Celia across the kitchen table, a solemn expression on his face. He asked her to sit down. If they wanted to give their baby a better life, he said, they only had one option. They should become criminals. Coming up, Celia Cooney becomes the bobbed-haired bandit. Now, back to the story. At the end of 1923, 19-year-old Celia Cooney was feeling desperate. Pregnant with her first child, she wanted nothing more than to give her baby a better start than the one she'd had. But she and her husband, Ed, could barely make ends meet. There didn't seem to be a way out until Ed came up with a plan. They could hold up some stores. Ed explained that a lot of people were getting away with robberies. If they just had enough nerve, they probably could too. It would only take a couple holdups to get them the money they needed. Then they would be on easy street and nobody would be the wiser. Ed already knew a little bit about robbery. On November 20th, 1923, he'd been arrested on a burglary charge. After a hearing, he was released, but his partner hadn't been so lucky. He was convicted and sentenced to up to 15 years in prison. It's unclear what Celia knew about Ed's involvement in the past burglary, but she gave serious thought to his plan. Maybe it wasn't that crazy. In the 1920s, robbery was all too common, especially in New York City. Every day, the papers reported on stores getting held up. 
with no DNA testing or closed-circuit cameras at the time, burglars could bank on getting away, at least for a while. It was a small amount of risk for a potentially big payoff. What eventually swayed Celia was her baby. Every time she thought about her child being raised in one tiny room, she got a pit in her stomach. She would do anything to protect her kid from the hell she'd been through, and she had good reason to be concerned. A 1997 study by Kathy spatz Whittam and Helene Raskin-White found that children who suffer abuse and neglect stand a higher chance of being arrested later in life for violent crimes. Of these children, girls are actually at a higher risk of arrest than boys. Ironically, it was Celia's determination to give her child a non-abusive childhood that led her to choose a life of crime. Ed already owned a gun, a 25 caliber pistol, but soon he came home with two more. Now it wasn't just a suggestion, it was real. Celia looked at the guns laid out on the table. She was an avid reader of detective novels and knew all about girl crooks and bandits. Now she could pretend to be one herself. The two decided to stage a little rehearsal. Ed stood behind the kitchen table and pretended to be a shopkeeper while Celia played the part of a customer who suddenly draws a gun on him. Each time she told Ed to stick him up, she got a thrill. She loved it. But the two made an agreement to never shoot their guns. Ed maintained that they were robbers, not murderers. Celia agreed. They decided to commit their first holdup on Saturday, January 5th, 1924, the first weekend of the new year. Ed would be able to sneak a car out of the garage where he worked, and they could drive around Brooklyn looking for the perfect shop. Meanwhile, Ed set to work welding two license plates together into one. This way, their getaway car could have a legitimate 1924 tag, but a fake number that couldn't be traceable to the garage. The weather turned frigid on the night of the 5th. Ed went out into the chill to get the car and left Celia alone in their tiny apartment. Celia was too excited to sit still. She dressed to the nines like she was going to a party, and as she waited for Ed in her stylish dress and sealskin coat, she thought about all the things they'd be able to buy their baby. Baby clothes, baby shoes, a beautiful crib. But then a dark mood took hold of her. She slumped over the kitchen table and began to tremble. She didn't recognize herself. Who was she? It was as if another girl had agreed to do this awful thing in her place, and now she had to follow through with her decision. Suddenly, she was terrified. Celia screamed that she couldn't go through with it. She cried out for Ed, but she was alone. Nobody could hear her. In that moment, Celia may have been experiencing what psychologists call a dissociative episode. Symptoms include sudden changes in mood, a feeling of disconnection or detachment, and sometimes identity confusion. This dissociation can arise more frequently in people who have experienced chronic childhood trauma. 
Celia's episode passed quickly, but still, when Ed returned, she was rattled. Yet when he asked her if she'd lost her nerve, she said no. She was determined not to let him down. That night, the two cruised around Park Slope, Brooklyn. Their target had to be a store that looked busy, with money in the till, but not too crowded. Finally, they saw the perfect place. Thomas Rolston Grocery Store on 7th Avenue. Ed pulled up in front, and they got out of the car. He left the engine running so they could make a quick getaway. Celia walked into the store with her head held high. The sight of six burly clerks behind the counter intimidated her at first, but she didn't show it. Celia had learned from an early age how to disguise her emotions. As she later put it, I was as cold as ice. Celia approached the clerk behind the cash register and asked for a dozen eggs. He went to retrieve them, then returned and began wrapping them up. Celia watched, still as cool as ever. Finally, Ed walked into the store. This was her cue. Just as the clerk placed the eggs on the counter, Celia took two steps backward and pulled the gun out of her pocket. She yelled, stick them up, quick. The clerk froze. For a long moment, he just stared, unable to follow her command. At last, he raised his shaking arms over his head, terrified. Behind her, Ed yelled at the clerks to line up at the back of the store. He pointed his pair of guns gangster style, half sticking out of the sleeves of his coat. As the men filed out from behind the counter, Celia was struck by how docile they were. Like sheep, she wanted to laugh out loud. As Ed went to the cash register, she took over covering the men with the gun. She was barely five feet tall, but the burly clerks didn't dare move an inch. For the first time in her life, Celia Cooney was in charge. Ed opened the cash register. Ed grabbed all the bills and coins and stuffed them into his pockets. He also snagged an envelope out of a nearby safe. It felt thick with cash. With her guns still trained on the men, Celia backtracked to the door and slipped outside. Then they were off into the cold Brooklyn night. As soon as they got back home, Ed went through their take. They'd made off with $680, almost $10,000 today. It was more money than Celia had ever seen in her life. She and Ed were ecstatic. It was like he'd said, they were on easy street, just like that. They hid the guns under the bed and stuffed the bills between the pages of books, but the elation didn't last long. As soon as the two got into bed, Celia's mood changed. She started to cry. That night, she had a nightmare. In her dream, the clerks she'd held up at the store turned into cops who grabbed her newborn baby by the back of its neck. She woke up screaming. What had she done? But by breakfast, Celia had settled down. She and Ed had money for the first time ever, 
Now it was time to put it to use. On Monday, January 7th, two days after the robbery, Ed signed a lease on a new apartment in the parlor and basement level of a house. Celia was beside herself. Two whole floors. But now they needed furniture. The next day, Celia picked out a dining set, sideboard, bedroom set, rugs, and a living room sofa. It all came to about $1,000, $300 more than what she and Ed had stolen. But that didn't matter. They could pay in installments. The two went home, feeling giddy. When the furniture was delivered, Celia had to pinch herself. She waved the delivery men around, feeling like the queen of the castle. But it didn't last long. In just a few days, Celia and Ed ran through the entire $680. Now they were broke again. They hadn't thought about how they would maintain their new lifestyle on their old income. Now they had installment payments for the furniture and a much higher rent to maintain. There was only one thing they could do, rob another store. But again, they swore it would be their last. They didn't waste any time, going out again that Saturday night, January 12th. Their first stop was the A&P supermarket, and just like before, Celia went inside first. There were four clerks behind the counter and two shoppers, a married couple. Celia and Ed reenacted their first routine almost to the letter, but this time they weren't as successful. As they told everyone to stick them up, the female customer looked baffled. She refused to put up her hands. Instead, she turned to her husband and loudly said she would never shop at this store again. Then she made her way to leave. Ed lost his temper. He yelled at her to go to the back. The lady did as she was told, grumbling the entire time. Celia couldn't believe it. She observed later that men act like sheep when you get them at the point of a gun, but you can never tell what a woman will do. Celia managed to keep the customers and clerks under control as Ed went through the register. Then they bolted. When they hopped into their car, they went through the take. It was less than $100. The only thing they could do was hit another store right then and there. Celia didn't mind. She was having fun, and they were on a roll. They moved on to the Bohack grocery store. The stick-up went smoothly, and they netted about $250. Over $300 wasn't bad for one night, but it wasn't great. They barely cleared what they needed to get through the month. Celia went to sleep that night feeling a bit blasé about their new career. It was becoming like any other job. The next morning, Sunday, January 13th, Celia boiled eggs and made some coffee while Ed went out for the newspapers. She was serving him his breakfast when they saw the headlines. Celia gasped. Splashed across the front page of at least three of the New York Daily newspapers were stories about their two holdups, but the headlines were about her. One read, 
pretty girl robber raids stores, while the Daily News called her Brooklyn's girl robber. The Brooklyn Eagle mentioned that she was armed with a powerful automatic. But Celia's favorite headline by far was from the Telegram and Evening Mail. In bold black letters, it stated, Bobbed-haired bandit terrorizes Brooklyn. Celia read on in disbelief. In each of the papers, Celia, not Ed, was in charge. One paper even had her driving the getaway car. Another claimed she was the head of an underworld gang. Clearly, a tiny, attractive woman in a fancy coat with a gun made for a better criminal than a hulking man in a fedora. Ed became simply her male accomplice, not even meriting a description. Celia was tickled. She was an overnight star. That's when she noticed Ed staring at the floor, holding one of the papers. He'd gone even quieter than normal. She asked him what was wrong then told him, for God's sake, don't be jealous. Ed simply pointed to the paper in response. Celia looked over his shoulder. It said that Celia and Ed were considered armed and dangerous. The NYPD had been ordered to shoot them on sight. Coming up, Celia Cooney plays a historic cat and mouse game with the police. Now back to the story. By mid-January of 1924, 20-year-old Celia Cooney and her husband, 25-year-old Ed, had pulled off three successful robberies in grocery stores throughout Brooklyn. Nobody knew who the mysterious robbers were, but Celia was suddenly famous. They called her the bobbed-haired bandit. The name alone inspired weeks and months of breathless reporting. The police, however, didn't find any of this press coverage amusing. They took the bobbed-haired bandit threat seriously, and just 24 hours after the story hit the papers, they made an arrest. Unfortunately for the police, it wasn't Celia Cooney. On Monday, January 14th, cops picked up a 19-year-old man named Vincent Apples Kovaleski, who fit the description of one of three men who'd held up a grocery store the day before. During questioning, Kovaleski broke down and confessed to robberies he'd had nothing to do with, including the ones pulled off by the Coonies. To make his confession more believable, he gave the police an ID on his female partner, but it was totally false. Helen Quigley was 23 years old and lived with her father in Brooklyn. She was an ex-chorus girl. The police didn't like that, so they went to her house and brought her in for questioning. In person, Helen fit the bill. She had bobbed hair, she was attractive, she lived in Brooklyn, but that was about it. During her interrogation, Helen told the detectives that the reason Kovaleski had ratted on her was because she had stood him up for a date. The cops weren't convinced, and soon they staged a lineup to prove themselves correct. To speed up an ID, police dressed Helen in an old fur coat and a hat that they'd grabbed from her apartment when they arrested her. They were desperate for her to be the bandit. But the store owners robbed by Celia Cooney couldn't agree on what she looked like. Some said she was blonde, 
others that she was brunette, some that she was tall, others that she was petite. Still, some of the victims who saw Helen gave a positive ID, and that was all it took. She continued to deny the crime, but never lost her cool, sometimes stopping to powder her nose during the interrogation. The police were skeptical. Any woman who was this calm and this collected probably had committed armed robbery. The next day, Tuesday, January 15, 1924, Helen and Kovaleski were formally charged with assault and robbery. They were each held on $10,000 bail and put in jail. When Celia Cooney read of Helen Quigley's arrest, she felt terrible. She didn't want to see an innocent person go to prison, so she and Ed decided to write a note to the cops letting them know they had the wrong girl, and to leave it with their next victim. That very night, they were back in the car, cruising the streets of Brooklyn for another place to rob. But Celia's motives weren't all altruistic. She wanted credit for her robberies. She liked the way the press wrote about her. In fact, it was starting to shape her own sense of identity. It was important that she get back out there and show the world who really could lay claim to the bobbed-haired bandit persona. Tuesday, January 15th was their first weeknight robbery, and they discovered that a lot of stores closed earlier than they'd expected. Finally, they found an open drugstore. Ed came in with Celia. It was too cold for him to wait outside. Two men stood behind the high pharmacy counter, a clerk and his manager. Celia put down a quarter and asked the manager for change, and he obliged. As soon as she could see his hands, she pulled out her gun and Ed followed suit. The pair then led the two men out from behind the counter. Celia covered them while Ed rifled through the register. As soon as he was done, it was time for the pièce de résistance. She plunked down the handwritten note she'd brought for the police. Then they bolted. As they drove away, Celia remembered what it said and smiled. The papers were going to eat it up. The note was featured in all of the papers the next day, just as Celia had hoped. The Brooklyn Eagle even had a facsimile of it printed so that readers could get a good look at the bandit's handwriting. It read, You dirty, fish-peddling bums, leave this innocent girl alone and get the right ones, which is nobody else but us. It went on to threaten the manager of Thomas Rolston's grocery store with another visit. This way, everyone would know that she was responsible for the first robbery, too. It ended with, We defy you fellows to catch us. The press absolutely loved this new development. A gun-toting woman baiting the cops? You couldn't make this stuff up. There was just one complication. Another bobbed-haired bandit was at large. This one had robbed a drugstore just a few miles away the same night. Celia's effort to take back the spotlight was thwarted. It was bad enough that she had to share it with Helen Quigley, but now she had to contend with an actual copycat. 
As for Helen, the only effect the note had on her wrongful arrest was to double her bail to $20,000, almost $300,000 today. Police Captain Daniel J. Carey was only slightly bothered by the note. Perhaps it was just Helen Quigley's copycat. Either way, if there was a real bobbed-haired bandit besides Helen, she was bound to strike again. Five nights later, he got his wish. On Sunday, January 20th, around 11 p.m., Celia walked into a drugstore on New York Avenue, owned by Benjamin Jospie. At the time, Jospie and his 65-year-old mother, Rose, were closing up for the night. Jospie took one look at the well-dressed woman who'd just stepped through the door and went to greet her. When Celia asked for talcum powder, he turned around to get it for her. Celia didn't waste any time. She pushed the pistol into his back and told Jospie, put your hands up and shut up. In the next moment, Ed entered and Celia started leading the owner to the back of the store toward his mother. When Celia pointed the gun at Rose, Jospie started crying. He screamed at them not to shoot. They could have whatever they wanted, but they had to leave his mother alone. They'd never seen a man so scared. Ed took the money out of the register while Celia yelled at mother and son to get down on the floor. The robbery was messy, and again, they got little money for their effort. Just before they left, Celia dropped off another note. This one was even more confrontational than the last. It read, Well, I'm certainly having a fine time with you bulls. Give it up, boys, because you will never get me, because I'll kill you off one by one if you start after me. Celia wasn't just taunting the police, now she was threatening to kill them. The note hit the papers the next day. This time, reporters didn't know what to think. Either this woman was crazy, or she was the most courageous person living in Brooklyn. Meanwhile, Celia was becoming obsessed with reading about herself in the papers. Not only was she becoming a celebrity, she was humiliating the NYPD. It was thrilling. Even Ed was starting to get caught up in it all. She later wrote, I guess our heads were swelled a little by the newspapers and the publicity we were getting. Everybody was talking about us. But an obsession with one's notoriety isn't uncommon. In fact, celebrity, or the state of being famous, has been shown to be just as addictive as any substance or compulsive behavior. Professors Donna Rockwell and David C. Giles conducted an interview study in 2009 involving the examination of 15 notable figures, individuals from fields such as sports, entertainment, and film. In their research, Rockwell and Giles argued that celebrity is a process that has four distinct phases. Stage one is a period of love or hate of the newfound fame, a reaction phase. In stage two, the subject will do anything they can to remain famous at all costs, an addiction phase. Celia Cooney, by her own admission, was becoming addicted to fame. 
It caused her to take reckless action to keep herself in the papers. Leaving threatening notes was one way to keep up the publicity. So was committing more robberies. After the Josby holdup, they didn't want to wait until the following weekend. They wanted to get out there again. After all, they had to keep the public happy. So on Tuesday, January 22nd, 1924, around 10 p.m., Celia and Ed took another car out from the garage. Minutes later, Celia walked into a small grocery store owned by Abraham Fishbein. He bowed to her as she entered, happy to see a customer so late in the day. Celia asked him for a cake of ivory soap. As he wrapped it up, she noticed a barrel of dried mackerel. Normally, it wouldn't have been appealing, but Celia was suddenly hit with a pregnancy craving. She asked Fishbein to add some mackerel to the order, and he happily obliged. Then Ed came in. At the last moment, Celia stuck the gun in between Fishbein's ribs. The shopkeeper almost dropped to the floor from shock. He started to plead with Celia not to shoot. Fishbein repeated himself over and over, chanting almost as if he were saying a prayer. Celia felt her heart pounding in her ears. Suddenly, a woman appeared from the floor above, having come downstairs to buy a pound of butter. Ed, riled up by the grocer's wailing, pointed his gun at the woman's face. He screamed at her to go to the back of the shop. Celia could feel they were inches from violence. It was pure chaos. Then they fled. Shaken by the experience, the Coonies laid low for the next 12 days, but they couldn't stay away forever. They decided to commit one more robbery on February 3, 1924. This time, the police showed up, hot on their trail, but missed them by minutes. By then, the NYPD couldn't take any more. They'd supposedly put the bobbed-haired bandit and her accomplice behind bars weeks ago. And yet, four more robberies had taken place since. Enough was enough. Some young woman wasn't going to make fools out of them any longer. One week later, Police Commissioner Richard Enright called a meeting of every detective in the department. That day, 850 of his best men filed into police headquarters, and the commissioner gave them a dressing down the likes of which the department had never seen. Crime had gotten out of control, and it was time for a crackdown. The same Saturday night, 250 plainclothes police officers were dispatched into the Atlantic Avenue area of Brooklyn. 150 detectives soon followed. They had a simple directive. At the sight of a tiny woman with bobbed hair, they were to pounce. And if they saw her in the act of robbery, they had direct orders to kill her.
Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Celia Cooney's story. We'll follow the end of her robbing streak and watch as her capture and trial turn into one of the biggest media events of the early 20th century. For more information on Celia Cooney, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Bobbed-Haired Bandit, A True Story of Crime and Celebrity in 1920s New York, by Stephen Duncombe and Andrew Matson, to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joanna Philbin, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.